Well, uh, we're, uh, we're beginning a brand new series that's specific here to North Campus this morning uh, called The Unfinished Disciple. If you were with us this time last year, uh, this is the first time we did this where each campus, uh, the campus pastor got to design a sermon series specific to the campus. Uh, so last year we went through the unfinished church, right? Does anybody remember that? Where we looked at the symbols uh, that we see in the New Testament that explain and open up about who and what the church is, that God looks at us and that it's unfinished, that we are a work in progress. We're never complete. We never reach that stage in our life where we look at the church and like, okay, she's complete and she's final. Uh, that we're always in the state of the biblical term as sanctification. We're always becoming more and more like Jesus every single day of the year, of the day of every day, pretty much. That's why we believe in Jesus every day. So this year I wanted to say, okay, well, we've looked at the church as a whole, but let's take a step back and let's look at the disciple. Let's look at each and every single one of us and where we're at so that we individually are pursuing after Jesus, and then collectively we as the church are pursuing after Jesus. So I kind of got that a little backwards. Maybe I should have started with this, and the next year went to the unfinished church, but hey, this is what we're going to do this year. Uh, so when we look at this, as we look in this text uh, here in Colossians chapter 3, we're, we're going to look at one main theme for the next four weeks. So there's going to be one theme that's going to overcome the breadth of the entirety of this sermon series, it's, it's, we're really just looking at one thing. That's all we're doing for the next four weeks. You're like, Ethan, that's boring. No, it's not. I promise you, it's not going to be. It's incredible to watch to see this main thing that hopefully we can attach ourselves to and we can, we can abide by. Before we jump into that, uh, one of the texts that I think that we as followers of Jesus should memorize and should understand is called the Great Commission. How many of you by raise of hand has ever even heard of what's called the Great Commission? Raise your hands. Awesome. Well, you just broke the stats. Do you understand this? In 2016, Barna did research, and they said that they came to the conclusion was that 90%, 90%, 9 out of every 10 people who go to church couldn't even tell you what the Great Commission was. When that stat was released, every pastor in this Bible-believing church has about lost their mind. Like, are you kidding me? How have we missed this? Well, sometimes if we don't make the main thing the main thing, the main thing becomes a side thing, right? So we've got to make sure that we keep the great commission. This is the mission of Father of Jesus. This is what we are to do. This is what we are about. And if we don't come back to this text very, very frequently, then we become 9 and 10 who forget about it and say we've never even heard of it, and we don't even know what we're doing as followers of Jesus living this life on mission here where God has placed us. So the Great Commission is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Uh, and I'm going to read it here for us this morning, and I encourage you, it's going to be on the screen as well for you to follow along with. And it says this, And Jesus came and said to them, this is after the resurrection, this is right before his ascension into heaven, and he's talking to not just his 12 disciples, but to about 120 people here on a hillside. He, said, he came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded who? You. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now when we read this and when you, when you hear this, sometimes we think there's actually only one verb in this entire text. When you read it in English, there's multiple, but in the original Greek or when Jesus would have spoken this, there's only one action item. Do you know what that action item is? I can give you the hint. It's not go. <laughs> it's make disciples. That's the only action item that 
Jesus gives to his disciples is looking at, hey, you're to make disciples. So the whole theme of this unfinished disciple that we're going to be looking at is that. The Greek word for make disciples is the word mathetosate. Can y'all say mathetosate? Hey, y'all did really good. I'm pretty proud of you in that. And the word mathetosate actually has two meanings, but it always means it's not like either or. It's a both and. So even I'll give you this illustration. Sometimes we think, Hey, my gift set, some people are like, hey, I'm really passionate about evangelism. Like, I just want to share the gospel with people, and I'll get them into a relationship with Jesus, and then I'll hand them off to you, and you will disciple them. Nope, that's not how the Bible teaches. Or some people, it's the opposite. It's like, hey, you, I'm never going to share my faith, but you bring me people, and I'll mature them up. No, it's not an either or. It's not either evangelism or discipleship. It's a both and. It's two ors in the same boat. Here, the word Matthew to sate means for to make disciples means you first have to be a disciple while making disciples. Now, I don't know if you catch the difference in that, but you have to be a disciple simultaneously while you're making disciples. Now, I think this is what tricks a lot of us up specifically in the Western world today here in America is because we think we can't quote-unquote, sell somebody a product, a.k.a. Christianity, or I can't make you into a disciple until first I am a completed work. Well, guess what, church? You'll never be a completed work. So in that, you as an unfinished disciple, as you're becoming a disciple of Jesus, you then are always to be making disciples of Jesus. Now, a lot of people, a lot of scholars, when they look at the text here, as well as um, people who are uh, in the ecclesiology, which is the fancy word for church, would say that you actually haven't become a disciple of Jesus yourself until you multiply or reproduce yourself into making another disciple. That that is actually what completes the process of making disciples here when we look at Matthew 28. That you become a disciple of Jesus when you've multiplied yourself and made another disciple. Now, that's scary for a lot of us because it's like, hey, I don't even know the entirety of the Scripture yourself. What if they ask me a difficult question that I can't answer? What if they bring something to me that just throws a conundrum in me and I'm like, I can't comprehend what they're saying? That's okay. You're not Jesus. He hasn't asked you to be because he says this, all authority has been given unto me, and now I give that unto who? You. You then live in the power and the authority, as we're going to look at here in a little bit, as the Holy Spirit resides in you. It's not about who you are and what you're doing. It's about who is inside of you, which is the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus, brings to you. So the whole theme for the next four weeks we're going to look at, you're going to see on the screen, is this. To be a disciple, you must have your identity in Jesus. To make a disciple, you must be a disciple. And to be a disciple, you must make disciples. Can y'all read that with me here this morning? We'll start from the beginning. Ready? Here we go. To be a disciple, you must have your... To make a disciple, to be a disciple, that's what we're going to look at over the next four weeks. So here in Colossians chapter 3, we're going to dive into this. Is Today we're looking at finding your identity in Jesus. Who you are or what you do comes from who you are. When you understand who you are in Christ, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. And if you don't have your identity found in Jesus, you can never be a disciple, nor can you ever make a disciple. So as Matt's already read uh, Colossians chapter 3, I've always had trouble finding uh, a couple books in the Bible, one of them being Colossians. Usually it's Ephesians and Galatians and Colossians and Philippians. Those really confuse me. Here's an acronym that you can memorize that I've memorized that helps me out a bunch. If I find one of these, then I can find the others. It's God Eats Potato Chips. 
He loves potato chips. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You find one of those four, just read that acronym to yourself and you can find the other. So if you have your copy of the Scriptures open to Colossians chapter 3, where we're at today, it'd be the last one of those fours. The first thing we see in this text that we're going to look at is that Jesus paid for your sins. Now even when you heard that, you're like, Ethan, I've already, if you've been in church, I've already heard that, I already know that. We can never move beyond this. Jesus paid for your sins. In verse 1, if, you, if then you have been raised with Christ. What does it mean to be raised with Christ? Well, to be raised with Christ, when it looks at here, it's this word that's coming from to be brought into life. To be raised with Christ means you first have to die or be buried with Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, that's what Paul's writing it. This is the tail end. Remember, when we read Scripture, we have to read it in the context of where it's placed. If you just dive into chapter 3 without reading chapter 2 or chapter 1, you're going to pull verses out of context. You're going to make it say things that's never meant to say. Colossians chapter 2, the last three verses here talk about what does it mean to be buried with Christ? Let's read it, starting in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? What he's saying here is, if you've, been, if you've been buried with Christ, why are you still submitting yourself over to things of this world, these elemental uh, things? 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that are perished as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, have a direct correlation to chapter 3, verses 5 through 17, which if you're in a life group, you're going to look at this upcoming week in verses 5 through 17. We just don't defeat sin. We don't defeat the, the passions of the flesh by just saying, hey, I'm going to deny those things. No, we defeat sin by, by dying with Christ. We defeat sin by dying to ourselves. We defeat sin by, because of who Christ is, Jesus. You have died for us. You have paid for my sins. I don't defeat this. No, you defeat this inside of me, and I surrender and submit over to you. That is what it's all about. That's what it's all about. So first means we have to be buried or die with Christ. Secondly, when we look at what does it mean to be raised with Christ, we have to die to ourselves, our wants, our desires, and our goals. Here's what happens too often. People come into a relationship with Jesus, and they have these desires and wants and these things that they've set aside before them. They come into a relationship with Jesus, and they just try to slap an I am second or a God first logo on the side of their desires, their goals, their visions, their dreams. Instead of surrendering over to Jesus, Jesus, what is it that you have for me? What is your desire for my life? What is your goal for my life? What is it you have for me? And I want to surrender and submit to that. But instead, we keep our desires, our passions, our dreams, and we just slap a I am second sticker on that. Or we wear Christianese t-shirts or whatever, whatever it comes to to make it look like what we desire is actually what God desires for us. But it's not. When we died with Christ, when we're put in the tomb with Christ, everything about us dies to him so that he then becomes everything of who we are and we're raised to this newness of life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul would say this, or he does say this, Therefore, if anyone is a new creation, 
The old has passed away. It's gone. Your life before Jesus, it is done. As Heather talked about, your old baggage, messiness, it is gone. It is no longer a part of who you are, including all of your personal desires, wants, goals, dreams, aspirations, all things. They are passed away. And behold, the new has come. The new is Jesus. What is it that Jesus wants for you? And this is why we here at FCC baptize people. We see in the scripture, we saw in Matthew chapter 20, that you're to baptize them. That's one of the things that we do do as a following the commands of Jesus is we baptize people. The baptism is a symbol of the gospel. It's a symbol that we are buried with Christ. As we're looking at here in the text, we're buried with Christ. We're put under that water. Because if I were to, I always say this in our baptism classes, our next steps classes, if I put you under the water, whoever's baptizing you, puts you under the water and then holds you there for a really long time, what's going to happen? You're going to die. You're not going to, and then we're going to have a lawsuit on our hands. So we don't do that. We don't practice that here. But we put you under saying, you have been, I'll baptize you, my brother and my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in the likeness of his death or the likeness of his baptism. We don't just stop there because the gospel doesn't stop there. But you've been raised to walk in the newness of life. The life that Christ has come to give you. He wants you to experience and to encounter life. So if you have never taken that next step in saying, hey, I want to publicly declare my relationship with Jesus publicly through the modes of baptism, we have a baptism class next Sunday. I would love to get you connected in that class and proclaim and celebrate with the body of Christ that you are a new creation in Christ, that the old is gone and the new has come. You can sign up for it. See our, uh, Heather or one of our volunteers at our Connection Center at the end of the services. We would love to connect you with this. So when we're ris- risen to walk as Jesus did, we never move more beyond the gospel. The gospel never becomes something that's old news to us. Rather, it's a continual good news to us that we just move deeper into those truths so that we see how the gospel meets our every single day needs. So how did Jesus pay for your sins? That's where we look at Jesus paid for your sins. How did he pay for your sins? In the Old Testament, we see that God created everything in Genesis 1 and 2. God created everything, the heaven and earth, and everything that's in it. And it's good, it's perfect, it's awesome. He created man and woman. He created them uh, to be laborers in the field and to, to work and to protect and to cultivate. And they dwell with him and it is beautiful. And then Satan enters in and he tempts mankind. And mankind falls. And the original design that God had for us, we fall short of that. And Adam and Eve sinned and centered in the world. And then from then on, the entire lifespan of earth has been about God's relentless pursuit back to relationship with his greatest creation. That's the gospel. He relentlessly loves you. He relentlessly pursues after you. He's relentlessly wanting a relationship with you. So from then on, God set up these sacrificial systems. He chose the nation of Israel, and he says, here, I'm going to choose these people, and these people are going to be a beacon to the world, and they're going to see that there's a God through these people, and these people are going to be in relationship with me, and here's how that happens. So God sets up the law, and inside of the law, you have the rabbinical law and these sacrificial systems, and so once a year, there's this massive atoning sacrifice. Every single day, there's all these different sacrifices in the temples or in the tabernacles before the temple was built. But God sets up one that's the atoning sacrifice that once a year, the nation of Israel is to journey to Jerusalem and they're to make these massive sacrifices for the forgiveness of all the sins of Israel. So they bring these lambs, these lambs that were without blemish, haven't been injured, not a spot on them, and they would be sacrificed and slain for the people. There's all this, really it's blood and gore when you look at it, of the sacrificial system. 
all of that was an imperfect system because it was pointing to the perfect system of Jesus Christ. The sacrificial system points to Jesus. So how did Jesus pay for our sins? I'm going to explain it. So I need three volunteers, just three people. I need you to come up here. Just right here, you have Matt, John, and one other. Come on, Alex. So up here, uh, I'm going to show you what's called the substitutionary atonement. Can you all say that? Uh, there you go, substitutionary atonement. So y'all can Matt, stand over here. Yep, Father Alex here and John Crazy. Just gotta, so uh, y'all are going to role play people for me, okay? Now, I'm not giving you a script. I'm doing anything crazy. You just got to stand here. It's just more of y'all are an illustration. I could use cups or anything, but I'm going to use people. So, Matt, you're going to play the role of God. Alex, you're going to play the role of all of mankind. And John Reed, you're going to play the role of Jesus, okay? So, in, like I said, in God's original design, God was in relationship with people. Due to sin, Alex, take a step to your right. This void or this brokenness entered in the world. All these lambs, this sacrificial system had to occur. In this, because mankind is no longer righteous and holy and perfect, they are not in relationship with God. So in this, they would make a sacrifice or a substitute for their sins of the lambs. That's like I said, it's pointing to the person of Jesus. So then in steps Jesus. So Jesus walk around. John Reed, Jesus walk around. And he becomes the substitutionary atonement, meaning he takes the place of the lambs that have been slain, or he's taken the place of our sins. And he's become the substitute. Instead of us experiencing life forever apart from God, he is substituted in that place. And God pours out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. That's when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, please, that is your will, remove this cup from me. Let, let me just pause right here. The power and the majesty of the cross isn't that Jesus died. It isn't that he died. Part of it is that he rose again. Yes, absolutely. But more significantly is that he received the wrath of God for our sins. He who knew no sins became sin so that we could be counted as righteous. So in this, Jesus takes the substitute of us so that in this, God looks at man, not as man, but as Jesus. That's the substitutionary attempt. All right, y'all can go have a seat. Thank you all very much. Give it up for John and Alex and, and Matt. Great job. So in this, in Romans 3.23, a very famous passage says, the wages of sin is death. Something or someone has to die. Our sin is death. The two words are synonymous. When we live in sin, the reason why, I want to be careful my words here, the reason why we as the church get up and roar about sin is not because it's nasty and ugly, but because it's death. And it's not life. And when we live in sin, we're living in death rather than living in life that God has designed for us. And he desires for us to experience and encounter life. So we here at FCC, we teach the three circles. It's a, it's a form, a mode of sharing the gospel with people. It starts with good news, then sinners, the world, uh, broken, sinners, the world, and it's brokenness is the second circle. Then the gospel steps in. We repent and receive the gospel. And then we recover and pursue back to God's original design. We're constantly recovering and pursuing back to God's original design in this. And in this bracelet, what happens is we try to fix our own sins by becoming our own atonement. Meaning we are experiencing the ramifications of death. We're experiencing the brokenness of death. We're experiencing the death and decay of sin in our lives. And we think we can fix it. So I'm stressed out. Bottle's going to relieve my stress. 
my wife and I, we're not getting along, but my coworker and I, man, we've really hit it off. I'm going to find my emotional health in my coworker. We try all these different ways to try to fix the brokenness in us, guess what, with more brokenness. And in that, the only thing that's going to fix our brokenness is the perfect person of Jesus. And he steps in and he became the substitutionary atonement for us. And as God's wrath was poured out on us, it's not behavior modifications. We don't become a good person to enter our way into heaven. We have to allow the atonement of Jesus, Jesus substituting for us to become a better person. There was an actor back in the day, John Reed's actually a massive Spaghetti Western fan, so I probably should have asked you this. Now y'all know something about John Reed. Um, But there was a Spaghetti Western actor back in the day who he smoked cigarettes like crazy. Just one after another after another, to where like, and probably this was with a lot of actors, that they had to like put them in the script rights for him to be picking up cigarettes and smoking them, lighting them and all that. Well, he rid of his smoking habits because he was experiencing a lot of physical health uh, detriments to it. So he substituted cigarettes. Instead of smoking cigarettes, he started eating lollipops. So now on the stage set, they had to put bowls of lollipops and into his script writing, they had to put lollipops for him to peel the wrapper and eat the lollipops. Now, I'm not saying that that wasn't a bad decision. It was a good decision. But oftentimes what we try to do is we try to take bad decisions or bad actions in our life, modify them so that we have a little bit better actions in our life that are really still fall short of the glory of God instead of allowing the substitute to be Jesus. And when Jesus becomes the substitute for us, we encounter and experience life like no other. So Jesus pays for our sins. The second thing that we see here in this text that we're going to look at is that Jesus gives you his righteousness. Now remember, all this is in finding your identity in Jesus. Jesus gives you his righteousness. Let's read in verse 3. If you have your copy of the Scriptures, look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now this is beautiful. We've talked about the death that we died to ourselves Paul brings it up once again here. But now you live with Christ in his righteousness. So I'm going to explain another theological principle that's called the imputed righteousness. Can you all say imputed righteousness? That was much better. I need my three volunteers back up here. Alex, Matt, John Reed, come back up here. So we talked about the substitutionary atonement, that Jesus became the substitute for us and atoned for our sins. So now Jesus, come back around. So what the imputed righteousness of Christ is, now when God looks at mankind, and mankind has received and believed in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, we now are found in Christ, and Christ is in us. Both of those are found in the Scriptures. It's kind of mind-boggling, right? Like, how am I in something and something, that same thing is in me? It's beautiful. I don't know. I can't explain it. I can't explain it, but I don't have time here. So Matt, who is God, looks at mankind and in our filth, in our muck, and our unrighteousness that we fall short of the glory of God. Have you ever stolen a cookie? You ever said a lie? You've done something wrong. All right, you're no longer perfect. That one sin separates you from God. Just one. That's all it takes. That one. So in that, the void from God to man, and God desires to dwell with man, for us to encounter and experience life, we now have to become righteous. We can't do it by ourselves. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus steps in, and then Jesus gives us his righteousness. You now have who Christ is. So when God looks at Alex, mankind, 
he does not see Alex. He sees Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Christ in Alex. He doesn't see Alex and his muck and his mire. He says, no, 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 my brother, you have been, you've been, your sins have been forgiven because of who Jesus is. Now live in that presence. That's the imputed righteousness that Jesus gave Alex his righteousness to go before the Father. Like I said before, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be counted as righteous. All right, y'all go have a seat. Thank y'all very much. Look at, just even look back at verses 1 through 2. He says, to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. When we find our identity in Jesus, when we find our identity in Jesus, we receive his righteousness. We realize that we don't have to work for anything. We don't have to strive for anything. We get to be transformed. Looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. When you're receiving the righteousness of Christ, even when you look at it, and if you're in a life group, I hope you look at chapters 5 through 17 this week, because 5 through 17, we want to jump into that, like, what am I to do? What's my action steps? What are the things that I do to become more like Jesus? That comes in 5 through 17. But it doesn't come from your strive or your will. It comes from your positional place as righteous in Christ and you receive that righteousness, you don't strain or attain for it, but rather you receive it. That's why people, says not, people say, not I, but Christ in me. And we realize this, there's not a good thing inside of us, it's who Christ is in me. So in this, Jesus gives you his righteousness. It's a beautiful thing. The third thing we're going to see here in this text is the Father adopts you as his child. When Christ, in verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory. What Paul is getting at here is one of two things that are going to happen. I can, it's a promise here today. Christ is either going to return and he's going to take his church with him, the rapture, we're going to ascend into heaven, or you're going to die. One of those two things is going to happen. And if you are found, if your identity is found in Jesus and you have the righteousness of Christ in you, you are going to go with Jesus and appear before the Father in all glory with Jesus. And in that, you then have the family name, per se. That you are now a child of the Most High God. You're a son and a daughter of the Most High God. You have received the family name. N.T. writes on verse 1, and beautiful. It says, The command to aspire to the things of heaven, which we saw in verse 1 and 2, is a command to meditate and dwell upon Christ's sort of life. And on the fact that he is now enthroned as the Lord of the world, the Bible does not say very much about heaven. That's a, pretty true, that's a very true statement. Think about that. It does not say much about heaven. And when the Bible does talk about heaven, it's heaven on earth, that the kingdom of God is here on earth as it is in heaven. I don't have time to talk about that too much, but we're going to get into it a little bit. Picking back up. But its central feature is clear. It is the place where the crucified Christ already reigns. And get this where his people already have full rights of citizenship. To concentrate the mind on the character of Jesus Christ, on that unique blend of love and strength revealed in the Gospels, is to begin on earth to reflect the very life of heaven. To reflect the very life of heaven. 
Church, this is what I want you to hear in this. When you have the, the family name of God, you then take heaven and bring it here to earth. That's why ministry, that's why in Romans says that we're now ministers of reconciliation. When you have a broken relationship with someone, it is worldly, it is earthly to say, you know what, I'm just not even going to talk to that person ever again. It is gospel to say, no, because of who Christ is, our relationship can be reconciled. It is earthly to live in the, the desires of the flesh. It's earthly to live in the passions of the heart. It's earthly to live in the desire of what our mind wants. But it's heavenly to die to ourselves, surrender and to submit to Jesus and say, Jesus, thy will be done. Whatever it is on earth as it is in heaven, may your will be done. We get to encounter, we get to experience heaven here on earth. The body of Christ, it is a beautiful thing. That's why, that's why I love the unfinished church so much. Because when the body of Christ just does what it does, I get succumbed to tears. I'm absolutely in awe. When you think of last week when we showed up and shopped, over 5,000 pounds of food and goods were bought last week. With that, opportunities of ministry are open due to your generosity. If you all know Eric McGeorge, Eric and Rebecca, who are uh, part of the least these, many of you are part of the least these, and I'm so thankful for your service in that ministry that we helped last week and come alongside of. But if you know Eric McGeorge, he is not a very emotional guy. He's just not. Some of us are, like me, I can cry at the drop of the hat. He is not. We were standing out there, it was about one o'clock, waiting to see if anyone else was coming by. And he just looked at the inside of Mercy and Grace is the name of the, the ambulance. He just looked in there and he looked at me and said, with tears, Ethan, I'm blown away. I'm blown away. I never thought we would have gotten a quarter of what we have. Because the church is the church. We get to see heaven come down to earth, invade the earth, push back against the principalities, the powers that we see in Ephesians chapter 6, push back against Satan's demonic rule here on earth. We have to push back against this because of who Jesus is. You know, one of the things that I think kind of trips up some people, because I've seen a lot of people in this, is the view of God as a father. And your earthly father wasn't a good earthly father. Therefore, your view of an eternal, everlasting father is broken and marred compared to what you could and should have experienced. My personal dad, you, you all have heard his story many a times. My dad for a long time, even still today, struggles because of how horrible his earthly father was that how is God an eternal, everlasting father. In this book that I'm about to mention, I disagree almost entirely of the theology of it, but it helped break that mold of my dad of God as a father. Because when you read, if you read through the Old Testament, get a little theology here, you have the Trinity. We believe that there's one God that displays in three beings, or three, yeah, three beings. You have God as Father, God as Son, God as Holy Spirit. God the Father in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, is given masculine names. You see he. Anytime in the Hebrew, Hebrew is a, a masculine, feminine uh, language. It's always masculine for God. But God isn't a man or a male. It's very complex. I understand. I can't quite wrap my mind around it either. But God in the Old Testament is given masculine names. At the same time, he's given oftentimes a lot of feminine attributes when it comes to say that God is like a hen protecting her chicks. Or like a mother nurturing 
or children. God isn't neither male nor female, but he's perfect. He's good. And God the Father, when we looked at, can trip some of us up. But when we understand our identity is found in Christ, we understand that we're a son or a daughter of the Most High God, and therefore we receive the benefits of being called a child. The author of Hebrews would put it this way. He says, because you're a child of God, you get to boldly approach the throne of grace. As the worship team makes their way up, one of the ways that we get to boldly approach the throne of grace is that no matter what time, no matter what, we get to call upon our Father. Last, uh, last Thursday, uh, Genevieve uh, had had a great day, and uh, when it got later in the night, she said her stomach started to not feel good. And, you know, kids, they kind of can't quite put, verbalize their pains and all that. She's, you know, she kin to a lot. Um, but she started to say that her stomach started to hurt her, and she wasn't feeling too good. And uh, so probably around like 8 o'clock, she started using the bathroom like every 5, 10 minutes. And that continued to about 11.30 at night. And uh, I, I was laying on the, the, the floor beside her because there's no use walking back to the room because about the time I got to the bedroom, Mommy, Daddy, I gotta use the bathroom. Girl, just go, just go use the bathroom. But you feel so bad for him. And I was laying there and all of a sudden, um, uh, I was laying on the floor and she said, she said, Dad, 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 Dad. And I could tell this was different. And so I grabbed the trash can and put on her bed, and she just let everything she had for dinner <laughs> flow up. And then she sat there, because she was hot, but her room was cold, and she was sitting there without her shirt on, and she, you know, just this pitiful, just like shivering. And she's just like, Dad, Dad, my body hurts. And I just feel so useless to her. There's nothing I can do to make you feel better, honey. I'm, that's why I kept telling Genevieve, I'm so sorry you feel bad. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do to solve you. There's nothing I can do to help your stomach. There's nothing. We just have to let this thing run its course. But because she's my child, because she's Katie's child, we'll stay up however many nights we need to to protect our child. That's the same thing we have with our father. That he loves us. He's given us the family name. We get to receive the, the inheritance of being called a son and a daughter of the Most High King. The difference between, when this is where the brokenness in the world, the difference between that analogy of Genevieve and I and the bedside is God looks at us and says, I have the solution. It's Jesus. It's my son that I sent for you. He will fix everything in your life. Just die to yourself. And receive the good news. Because here's the thing, church. The good news is that Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus Christ desires to give you life. But for us to receive good news, there has to be bad news, right? The bad news is that we're sinners. And the worst news of all to receive the good news for the bad news is we have to die to ourselves and give up everything that we ever wanted to receive the good news, to receive everything we've ever needed in the love of Christ. So when we look at this, the main theme of this entire series that we're going to go through. To be a disciple, you must have your identity in Jesus. To make a disciple, you must be a disciple. And to be a disciple, you must make disciples. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word that's, that speaks to us, that it's alive and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, I pray that this morning as we gather to worship, that the words that came out of our mouths and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in thy sight, our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. And Father, I pray this morning that hearts would be stirred by the grace that you offer us. And we've looked at a few big words here, but the essence is that you desire to be with us, Jesus. 
And so, Father, I pray if there's someone in the room right now that's distant, that's far from you, that doesn't have a relationship with you, Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, if there's someone in this room that they would cry out to you as we sing earlier, Lord, I need you. That our good is not good enough and we need Jesus to take our place. So this morning, church, if you're here today, I'm just going to ask you a question. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here today and that's you and you need a personal relationship with Jesus and you say, I want to die to myself and receive the good news of Jesus, we want to come alongside you and help you in your relationship with Jesus, continuing deeper into the love of the Father. But to do so, we have to know. So this morning, if that's you, would you just raise your hand right now and say, yes, today I want to begin a relationship. I want to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. I want to be loved by the Father. Just raise your hand. We'd love to connect with you. Thank you. Father, we thank you for how you stir in us, how you stir in our hearts the love that you have for us. Jesus, may we worship you with all of who we are. Lord, because you're so worthy, may we find our identity in you that we receive the righteousness of Christ and what comes out of us is what's inside of us. And Jesus, may we find you. May the world find you inside of us and may we bring heaven to this earth to proclaim your glory, the kingdom of God here in the Roanoke Valley and beyond. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing and worship.